Welcome to the Galloway Law Podcast. My name is Thomas Galloway. Today's guest is Andrew Jers, Associate Dean of Drake Law School, Professor of Law, and former prosecutor. We talked about the use of expert witnesses in trial. Experts have gotten the reputation as hired guns for either the plaintiff or the defendant. We talked about whether or not this reputation is deserved and then looked at how experts are perceived by jurors, judges, and lawyers. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share with a friend who also likes this kind of stuff. And now to the interview. I'd like to start with the types of expert witnesses we typically see. We're, we're used to seeing doctors and scientists, at least portrayed in movies and shows and stuff like that. But what are some other professions that are typically used as expert witnesses? You know, you can have an expert in pretty much anything. Uh, It depends on the nature of the litigation, but I would think that uh, engineers is very common. Uh, If there's a structural design in a product or in, say, a bridge that was a road bridge that collapses or an automobile to decide whether it was designed properly. Uh, doctors are very common as forensic uh, police uh, investigators who are trained in fingerprint, DNA, uh, and other crime scene investigations. Uh, there's corresponding experts on the defense side who do the same disciplines. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes they're retired police uh, investigators, right. but uh, medical doctors of all stripes. Uh, you can have experts in what. Um, a reasonable response would be in any particular profession. Mm -hmm. And so you would have maybe a teacher or a professor or uh, a law enforcement expert who could discuss how law enforcement would uh, react to a certain situation, what would be reasonable, what would not be reasonable. And so we can really run the gamut. Okay. So experts have sort of reputation as hired guns. And if you have them on both sides, as it mentions in the paper, you might have a battle of the experts and it could lead to jurors discounting both of them. They kind of cancel each other out. Do you see that as a legitimate problem and are there any viable solutions to that? I think it, uh, it's an inherent problem in the issue of expert witnesses. If I have an expert who is a world-renowned expert who has defined the field for 30 years, written the textbook in that field, and has trained vast majority of, they say, doctors in that particular field, they're the plaintiff's expert. And then on the defense side, you hire someone who only does expert witness testimony, has made their entire living off of that for the last 10 years, has never done any research work, and is on the fringes of the field. The jury will get the misleading impression when they see expert A, expert B, oh, there must be a legitimate scientific dispute here. Right. And in fact, there might be. But oftentimes there's not, and that's because lawyers are more likely to pick experts who can more strongly support their position than an expert who tells you, you know, that's really up in the air. And that leads to those experts who will more strongly state their position being the ones who get hired Mm -hmm. in the marketplace of experts. This is an inherent problem. Now, it's not necessary that in any particular case you'll have that problem. You might have a battle of experts, but there might be a legitimate dispute between those two positions that are equally valid. But the jury would never know whether it's a valid equal dispute or Mm -hmm. a dispute that's being created out of a litigation strategy. Um, Are there solutions to that problem? 
Well, uh, adv advocacy and the appropriate presentation of the evidence and the countervailing evidence is the litigation strategy that an attorney would take in those circumstances right. uh, because then they would point out the weaknesses of the opposing side and the strong support for their own side. Right. Uh, but systematically, I've written some articles about looking at other methodologies that might uh, make the expert witness system and the fact-finding uh goal of the expert witness system more reliable okay. and uh, so those are certainly some of the options involve systematic changes that I suggested um, in several papers earlier in my career and then later I started collecting data to support the idea that those were necessary. Right. What would be an example of some of those systematic changes? Uh, one of the papers involved looking at expert witness issues from multiple uh, large industrialized countries, uh, Canada, United Kingdom, Germany, Japan, mm -hmm. and how they handle expert witnesses. Now, okay. Canada and the UK, those are systems that are based in common law right. and are not that dissimilar from the US system, at least they sound familiar enough that traditionally there's been adversarial witnesses, although it's starting to shift away. Mm -hmm. Then when you get to so-called civil law systems of the continent, uh, you see uh, not an adversarial system as much as a inquisitorial, which sounds really nasty, but it really just means the judge's fact finder type mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. And in those systems, the judge will hire their own expert. Okay. Uh, so two suggestions I made based on this analysis of foreign countries was that in Canada, uh, the judge does a summation of the evidence at the end of the case. Okay. This is something that American judges do not do because they say that's the jury's responsibility to think about the evidence. My job is to tell them the law. Right. But in Canada, the judge will frame the evidence for the jury. And I hope, I think that in some ways that helps the jury uh, avoid confusion on tangential issues that are not central to the case. Right. I've tried a lot of cases. You be surprised what sometimes juries get hung up on. Uh -huh. uh, and a judicial summation could avoid some of those issues interfering with the central issue that the jury will have to decide. Right. And then uh, another more radical, I suppose, innovation would be uh, to think about judicial experts being used more often, selected by the judge mm -hmm. to be a judicial assistant in the area of scientific knowledge to provide that expertise in analyzing both sides' experts, right. say, to decide whether they should testify before the jury. Would those be considered independent witnesses if the judge selects them? That's correct. An independent it, expert. And how would the jury know whether that is an independent witness or one that was hired by a particular side? Oftentimes the witness wouldn't testify. They'd be used in the pre-trial okay. uh, motions practice and litigation. Uh, attorneys will file motions, uh, for example, motions to strike plaintiff's expert because they didn't follow the rules. Right. And then the judge may or may not know if that's a valid motion or not, and they might need some scientific assistance to decide whether this is something that meets the standards for admissibility. Right. This is where an expert witness on the judge's own part could be extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. So I think most of them would probably be uh, pre-trial uh, dispute resolution issues. Okay. Uh, it's certainly possible that a independent expert could testify. It would almost certainly be at the request of one of the parties or the other, right. whoever benefits more from that right. testimony, and yeah. then I'm sure that everyone would point it out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> as far as juries in general, what are some pros and cons of the jury system as a whole? Uh, I 
don't teach uh, constitutional structures, but okay. what I do teach is uh, criminal law. Mm-hmm. And in the criminal law, uh, and this is true throughout the system, but it's particularly uh, clear in the criminal justice system, the jury has the role of fact-finding, but it also has a legitimating effect on the judgment that comes out of the trial. Right. If you bring in 12 people from the community and 12 fair-minded people who have been selected by both sides after they get to strike the most objectionable people mm-hmm. decide that someone is guilty, then that says, hey, you know what? Reasonable people, they, can all, they can't agree on where the sun comes up or uh, right. who the best candidate is or where to right. get their news, but they can all agree that this person's guilty. Right. And that legitimizes that verdict and says this is not a wrongfully convicted person in jail. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. We know that sometimes people are wrongfully convicted, right. which is, of course, a terrible tragedy. That legitimizing effect is one major benefit of the jury system. Mm-hmm. Another is community involvement. The jurors themselves come into the system and right. see that there's a litigant on behalf of them who is presenting the case on behalf of the state, mm-hmm. and they might see they're doing a good job. They seem fair-minded. That's someone I like representing my interests uh, on behalf of this community. Right. Or they might see that that person is aggressive and acting inappropriately and say, you know, next time there's an election for that position, I might want to say to my neighbors, you know, you probably shouldn't support that uh, prosecuting attorney because I don't think that they're doing a very good job. Maybe we should think about something else because that's not the way I think this should be handled in my Mm -hmm. community. Okay. Uh, So those are some of the benefits of the jury system. Right. As far as compensation of experts, in the paper, a vast majority of lawyers believe that compensation of the expert did not make them biased. I think most people would find that hard to believe what is the argument for that claim that compensation would not make expert witnesses biased? So when you ask those questions at a deposition, which is a pre-trial interview of a witness mm-hmm. or a trial, uh, when the witness is on the stand in front of a jury, it usually comes across as, now, Mr. Witness, you get paid a lot of money to be answering these questions, to have an opinion here, don't you? Well, yes, I do. And what is that rate? Oh, it's $500 an hour. I see. For $500 an hour, you'll say anything you possibly want because that's a lot of money. But, you know, when you're dealing with specialized experts, and I did as a medical malpractice attorney, these are extremely well-trained, highly regarded experts in subspecialty fields. And the reality is that they've got a lot of things to do with their time. And so if they're getting – if you're a cardiothoracic surgeon, you could – go be doing surgery, or you could be um, training other surgeons. Uh, And so to get someone to look at your file, Mm -hmm. to give their opinion, you need to fairly compensate them. And so I think the reality is that people don't work for free. They shouldn't work for free. And so to merely point out, you're being compensated, aren't you? Well, yeah, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) You're not here for free either. So in that way, the attack, I think, falls flat. Okay, yeah. The other way it falls flat is that both sides do it to every expert. Right. Oh, your expert's being paid. They don't believe a word they say. But then when that party's own expert is on the stand, the other side says, oh, it's true, you're being paid. You're a hired gun. Right. Well, now the jury says, whatever. Of course they're both being paid. Right. That's not really relevant. Right. Uh, so lawyers will always ask that question. When I was a lawyer, I probably asked it, at least at depositions. 
but I always in my mind fell flat. And so I asked that question in the survey because I wanted to see what people thought about it. Right. Okay. That makes sense. What are some steps specifically to presentation style of the expert witness that they can be advised to improve their credibility? Okay, so in the jury system, in a jury trial, the jury is has to decide whether each witness is credible. Okay. Now, in a crime case where there's eyewitnesses, you'd have to decide, do we believe that they saw what they're saying they saw? Mm-hmm. Remember it accurately? Are they telling us the truth? Do they have any reason to lie? Right. Those issues are all in play for a regular fact witness. Then when you have an expert witness, you've got the added uh, issue of them being hired by one side or the other uh, and whether or not they, that affects their motivation in the case in one direction or the other. Right. So there's a lot of research that shows that juries believe that they're very good at making credibility determinations mm-hmm. and that they're wrong. <laughs> that, in fact, they are not as good as they think they are mm-hmm. and, in fact, don't outperform chance. And the way these studies are set up is they'll have somebody talking to a camera and they'll right. say one thing that's true and one thing that's a lie. That's a lie. Right. And then they show a, jur- a subject, a test subject, 50 of these, mm-hmm. and they have to say truth or lie for each statement. They might as well be flipping a coin. Right. They just don't know, right? Because right. just by looking at someone, it's very hard to tell if they're telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people who lie all the time might be perceived as very trustworthy and honest. Some people who are telling the truth might be perceived as deceptive mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. Uh, some of those could include that they um, don't have a polished uh, demeanor, that they avoid eye contact, that they uh, don't tell a coherent narrative. These are all signs of being nervous, too. Right. And not, people are not used to being on the stands. Right. Um, and so... Yeah, you've got those credibility issues that the jury's going to have to decide. And then on the issue of expert witnesses, it's not just that they're trying to decide, is the person being honest with us in the general sense? It's also, uh, is this person telling us the truth about their scientific discipline? Right. Well, how would I know? If someone's on the stand talking about um, molecular chemistry, Mm -hmm. a subject which I have very little aptitude for, I might be able to tell whether they're being shifty-eyed or look nervous, right. but I have no idea whether they're telling me the truth about the structure of certain molecules and the way they interact in a solution. Right. But I'm going to have to make that decision as a juror. Mm-hmm. That's kind of crazy, don't you think? Yeah. That's one reason why juries need guidance in this area, and one reason I suggested the judicial independent experts to be involved as well, because the judges aren't so hot at this either. I'd like to ask some questions about gatekeeping. Could you generally explain that and then the difference between the Fry and Daubert standards? Sure. Let's take those one at a time. Okay. Gatekeeping is a term that refers to the process by which the judge will determine whether an expert can testify to the jury. Prior to trial, the litigants in a case, let's say a Med-Mal case, they have the obligation to disclose to the other side who the experts are that they've hired who are going to testify on their client's behalf. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll exchange those notices, and then afterwards, usually what happens is each side will take a deposition of the opposing experts. Okay. That's testimony under oath that's taken without a judge present, but in a conference room of some sort, right. in which you learn about their opinions and the basis of the opinion. Okay. At this point, everybody could just go to trial, but mm-hmm. what often happens is 
the deposition is used as a way to ferret out the weaknesses of an expert's opinion. Right. And then let's say I have done that as the litigant, as the attorney in the case, found a weakness in the opposing expert. Mm -hmm. I'll file a motion for the court, to the court, saying their expert witness should not be able to testify because they lack a sufficient foundation for testimony in this area. Right. The judge then has to decide, as a gatekeeper, is the expert allowed to testify? Are they allowed in to talk to the jury, or are they not? Right. And this often happens well before trial, weeks, months. It can happen during the trial, but that's uh, suboptimal because you want both sides to have an opportunity to litigate the issue fully. Right. These can be case dispositive issues. If my cardiothoracic surgeon is kicked a week before trial, my case is over. It's done. Right. So uh, that's an issue that both sides take very seriously and litigate uh, uh, in many complex expert cases. What's the judge going to do now? The judge has to decide what does the rule require and have they met each of those standards for admission. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's a series of things you have to decide and that's true in any case. Is this person an expert? Right. right? Is this something the jury needs an expert to help them with or can they figure it out themselves? A jury might not need help uh, deciding how fast a car is moving because that's something you do when you're on the highway. Right. right? On the other hand, uh, the correct procedure for uh, valve replacement in a heart muscle uh, during open heart surgery, they're going to need some help with that one. Uh, you have to decide, does the expert know enough about the case, like basic factual uh, basis to mm -hmm. establish an opinion? And then the final issue is, is their opinion based on reliable methods? Right. This is where Daubert and Fry come in. Okay. Because while Daubert and Fry are both answering the same general question, is this reliable enough to go to the jury? They use a different standard to answer that question. Okay. In a Fry jurisdiction, which can be still includes many states in the United States, New York, California, Illinois, okay. uh, the judge to decide if something is reliable will ask the question. Is this generally accepted among experts in that field? Right. And so you ask the expert, hey, uh, when you say that this is the correct procedure for valve replacement, is that something that's in your field of cardiothoracic surgery? Is that something that people agree with you on, or is that just your opinion? Oh, right. people agree with me. Oh, well, how do, how do I know? Right. And then they would say, oh, well, you could probably look at the leading textbooks in this area. You could look at the last year's conference on cardiothoracic surgery and how they were doing valve replacements, new methodologies, and how those are taking over from old methodologies. Right. That shows that this is not just my opinion, but it's within the mainstream of the field. Right. Compare that to the Daubert standard. In the Daubert standard, just like with Fry, you're asking, is this reliable enough to be admitted? But to answer that question, you're not deferring to the experts among themselves to say, hey, you surgeons, go figure this out and then tell me what you think. Instead, it's the judge's own obligation to decide whether or not this is good science or not. Okay. They do that using certain markers, uh, certain uh, factors that they can consider, like has this, is this something that's been published in a peer review article? Because right. uh, if it has, that's more likely to be good science. If it's never been published, hmm, that's one thing we can consider. Right. Uh, can it be tested? Uh, are there standards for determining this sort of test? 
And finally, general acceptance. That Fry standard is okay. one of the factors that goes into the overall Daubert analysis. Okay. Uh, and so to decide if the expert can testify, there's those um, basic foundational issues of is this an expert? Does the jury need help? Do they know enough? Mm-hmm. And then finally, there's the reliability analysis, which can be Fry as it is in certain states, or a Daubert analysis, which is the standard in federal court and in many other okay. states. Do you see Fry states moving to the Daubert, Daubert standard at some point? We have seen that since Daubert. Daubert was decided in 1993. Uh, before that, there were a couple states that had a Daubert-like standard, but okay. they didn't call it Daubert because the case hadn't right, happened yet. Right. Since then, many states have adopted the Daubert standard as their own, oftentimes through uh, the state Supreme Court interpreting their state rules of evidence that the expert witness rule encompasses the Daubert standard, Mm -hmm. Uh, although certain states have had those types of cases come up and rejected that standard. In many of the major states, if not all of them, that still use the Fry standard, the issue was litigated in the years after 1993 Mm -hmm. in California, People v. Leahy, 1994. In Minnesota, there's a case. In Illinois, there's a case. In Pennsylvania, New York. People all brought these Daubert cases to the state Supreme Court. And in those particular cases, they rejected the change uh, while other states were adopting. But at this point, Daubert is the um, uh, uh, overwhelming majority. A significant majority of states use the Daubert standard. Mm -hmm. There's a group of states that uh, continue to adhere to the Fry standard. And there's a uh, other group of states that use a state-specific standard. That actually includes Iowa as well. Okay. So back to lawyers uh, interviewing the opposing witness in the deposition and you mentioned if they find some kind of thing they think is a weakness or something that they think the judge should throw out that expert Mm -hmm. is there any how often do you think it happens where they find a weakness like that but do not mention it in the goal of exposing it in the trial it depends on the nature of the weakness okay if if you think you can win the case by kicking the expert my cardiothoracic surgeon's right. out, case over, Right. then you're going to want to litigate that issue pre-trial in front of the judge because you're going to save your client a lot of money right. by not having to do a two-week jury trial with all the preparation necessary. Trial is a very expensive process. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, not every issue rises to that level. Mm-hmm. You might find there's a weakness in the testimony, but it's unlikely. Maybe you know the judge is unlikely to kick the expert anyway. They just say, hey, let it all in, let the jury figure it out. Right. You might want to metaphorically keep your powder dry and then wait till trial and then spray it on them then. Right. That way, you're using that issue for the jury's benefit to say, this expert's a clown. They don't know what they're doing. You should not find them credible, right. which doesn't win the case in that exact moment like it would with a Daubert motion being granted and the expert being kicked. Right. But it makes it much more likely that the jury will find in your favor. Right. This after an expert has been approved by the judge, and then throughout the trial, for whatever reason, the judge thinks that they're no longer reliable. Is there any recourse, any action they can take? So there's been, a, in your situation, there's been a Daubert motion filed challenging the reliability of the expert prior to trial. Right. And the judge has said, we held this hearing, and I believe the expert is reliable enough right. to testify. The case goes to trial, the expert takes the stand, and the testimony is either different or more expands upon the issue of reliability, and now it appears that the expert is not reliable enough. Right. The judge could, 
at that moment, uh, during the recess, the litigant in question, supposed the expert would say, Judge, we dealt with this issue in the pretrial Daubert motion. The facts have now changed. I'd like to bring that motion back for your consideration. Right. That's possible to do. And it's also possible that the judge would say yes and okay. kick the expert. And if so, if that expert is necessary for the case, then the case can't proceed because the, the jury could no longer find in that expert's right. client's favor. On a practical level, that's unlikely to happen. Okay. Partially because the judge has already found the person to be reliable. Partially because experts who testify a lot, who are a lot of experts actually, uh, they are unlikely to change their story at trial in an enormously significant way. They do sometimes, but it's usually smaller issues, especially tangential. On the central core issue, it's pretty unlikely because they know that that's the real issue that's in dispute. And then finally, I can see even if you had a change in testimony, a request to reconsider the Daubert motion, I think that uh, judges would be reluctant at that point to kick the case. Okay. They'd say, I hear what you're saying. However, I think it's up to the jury to decide whether that's a flaw in the testimony. Let's let the jury decide in their verdict. Right. Just on a practical level. Okay. In the paper, it seemed that lawyers are quite commonly concerned with the process of gatekeeping and they have some, seem to have some object, objections to it. Why is this the case? Uh, if you could be more specific, what type of objection are you talking about? They seemed like a low percentage seemed to have no approval or looked on the process favorably. I think that has a lot to do with uh, their cons- I can't speak for all lawyers, right. but I can suggest that this might have something to do with their belief that judges are either ill-prepared to make these types of decisions, Mm -hmm. because judges aren't scientists and they're being asked to make a scientific valuation of whether this is reliable scientific evidence, or that in their practice they've seen these issues get raised in front of judges and they've seen judges make decisions that they didn't think were right. Right. Uh, If you had that experience as a litigant, as an Mm -hmm. attorney, you'd say, you know, um, I brought five of these, and they always get rejected, even though in all five cases I thought they were extremely valid. Right. If you're being objective, fair-minded and objective about it, these are really valid motions. None of them are being granted. You know, maybe this gatekeeping thing isn't working all that well. Right. I think that's a pretty reasonable response. Of course, it does depend a little bit on how objective the person is right. being about their own motions. If you're filing these motions in every case, just as a boilerplate type uh, thing that you do in every case, then maybe their rejection is not something that speaks about the process overall, but instead in the selection process of when to file the motion. Right. I could see how that could happen, and that might explain the results you saw. Right. Are there any obvious improvements that could be made to the gatekeeping process that you would see, or does it seem like a pretty solid at this point? Um, I think that gatekeeping is going to be necessary Uh, And so it's not something that can be avoided. Uh, You need to have that process whereby unreliable experts will not be permitted to testify and we don't need to have a trial and waste jurors' time, waste the court's time to figure that out three weeks into trial. Mm -hmm. If it's not reliable now, it's not going to be reliable then, let's just end the case here. So the function of gatekeeping is something that will continue. Uh, Can it be improved? Uh, I think 
yes, of course it can. Uh, one of the ways we've already talked about is the use of independent experts right. by judges to make uh, more reliable determinations on scientific evidence using uh, someone on their own behalf to objectively evaluate the uh, testimony from the partisan experts. Okay. And one of the questions the jurors were asked how well they understood expert witnesses, and there's a very high percentage said that they seemed to understand and thought they knew what was going on. How likely is that the case, and how do you deal with a jury that you perceive to be overconfident? It's a good question. Uh, how likely is that to be the case? I'm skeptical of that result, but you'd have my survey does not give me a way to test whether my skepticism is warranted or not. Right. If you ask some, show someone a complex scientific video. And then at the end, ask them, did you understand that? Mm -hmm. How many people are going to say, no, I totally lost. I didn't have any idea. Okay. Uh, right? yeah. It's pretty unlikely. They might say something like, you know, I had a pretty good idea. But there were a couple things I was confused about. But in general, I got it. Right. I think that's the answer that we got okay. in that survey. Right. Um, and, you know, the litigant's job, the attorney's job is to make this comprehensible. So you could say the attorneys are just doing a really good job. On the other hand, the jury does have to make some complicated decisions about complex evidence. Uh, right. And so whether they understand the nuances of, and I've used this example before, uh, aortic valve replacement and cardiothoracic surgery, I don't know. Right. Uh, it seems pretty unlikely that they get every nuance there. Right. Uh, but I couldn't directly test that in this survey. Right. Is there any way to tell as the trial is going on whether a jury seems to be a little too sure of themselves? Or is it just... You have no idea. You <laughs> you try to make judgments about whether the jury is receptive to your case, right. and are they paying attention to me? Do they are there any notes? Are they engaged in when my witnesses are on? Uh, those are all extremely poor proxies for whether they're actually right. paying attention. Uh, so there's a lot of guesswork involved. Mm -hmm. I have. In my experience, as a prosecutor more than as a civil litigator, found that I was oftentimes wrong about those assumptions. Right. But is it better not to make them at all, or is it better to try your best and then be found out that you're wrong? Well, you're a litigant. You're trying to do best by your clients, so you right. have to make these sort of decisions. And as you gain experience, you get better at it, I would hope. Okay. So if you could go over the little bit explanation of the three main P's associated with this prevalence, persuasion, and pricing. Right. I did a research study uh, a couple of years ago in which I pulled all the court files for every case that had gone to jury trial mm -hmm. in civil cases, meaning cases about money or property or things, uh, to look at the expert witnesses in those cases to decide how often are there expert witnesses, mm -hmm. their prevalence, uh, what do different parties in the case want out of expert witnesses, how do they persuade? Mm -hmm. And then how much do they cost? Right. right? Price. Right. And so I asked, I pulled the court files to determine how often experts occur and for which parties. And then I sent out surveys to four groups of litigants, the jury members, the judges, the attorneys, and the experts themselves, asking them a series of questions that were specific to their group, for juries, for example, 
but also some overlapping questions, and then I could compare the results from, say, judges against jurors to see if they're identical. Right. And you ended up, I ended up seeing some pretty interesting results in that area. Mm-hmm. The it seemed that lawyers overestimated the importance of the pl- a pleasant personality of the expert and underestimated the importance of the expert being a leading expert in their field. What can lawyers learn from that discrepancy and are there, how would they change their approach to picking experts? I think the uh, bottom line issue that my research showed was that while lawyers make judgments based on their experience in this area, that they're not always right about what jurors want right. and that if you're a good litigant, you should give the jury what they want. Right. And so change your approach, not based on your experience, which seems to be not correct, but instead to what they want because that will be more persuasive in the courtroom. Right. Uh, and so I would advise people who deal with expert witness cases to take that into account and uh, it would probably change the selection of which types of experts you'd want to pick. Right. As far as the prevalence, before you begin researching these areas, were, were, the, were you expecting numbers that ended up the re- be the results? The number of expert witness cases that I ended up with was 86% of the total sample. That number is actually, completely coincidentally, identical to the number from a study done in the 1990s. I did not expect it to be identical. <laughs> uh, that's like hitting green and a roulette wheel or something. Right. I expected it to be different, but I wasn't quite sure which way it would be different. Expert witnesses are expensive, but they are the key to a lot of litigation. So that pushes in different directions. I guess what I really was hoping to get was a reliable baseline amount of data on what's going on in courtrooms in the United States. Right. That was one of the purposes of this study. Right. It seemed a slightly high percentage of experts were brought by the plaintiff. Is Why is that the case? The plaintiff has the burden of proof in right. civil okay. cases, and so it's their obligation to show usually by a preponderance of the evidence, meaning more likely than not, that their claim is valid and that the uh, acts of the defendant resulted in uh, damages or an injury of some sort. Since they have to check all those boxes to make their case, it would make sense that they would have to bring more experts. As a defense attorney, let's say there's a cardiothoracic injury involving aortic valve replacement. I might defend the case on damages. I might defend the case only on standard of care, right? Saying uh, this was clearly the right thing to do, so we don't even need to talk about causation, right? Right. That that way, I don't need as many experts, uh, depending on my uh, litigation strategy. So I'm not surprised to see that plaintiffs are higher. Okay. And it mentions some in the paper about there not being a ton of studies on th- this topic. Why do you think that's the case? I think it's the case because collecting the data is extremely difficult. Uh, To do the study, uh, I had to pull all the files for all the civil jury trials in the year 2012 in Polk County. Mm -hmm. Now, good thing I work in Polk County, so the courthouse is several miles from here. But I did have to go to the clerk's auxiliary office every Friday afternoon for a couple months Mm -hmm. to pull stacks and stacks of files. It was what, 46 uh, files total, something like that. Uh, like, yeah. Off the top of my head, I'm having a hard time remembering. Somewhere in that yeah. ballpark. And I would end up uh, looking at them one at a time, looking at who's the experts who are the, uh, 
who are the um, attorneys, uh, who's the judge at trial, and then in the court file are all the juror names. Mm -hmm. right? That's public information, so I'm entitled to look at it. But right. then I have to find who are these people because right. it's just their name and maybe their age and their city. Okay. Well, then I have to do public record search, finding the right person. Right. Uh, it, took months to just make sure I'm sending the survey to the right person. Mm -hmm. And then you have to try and get their responses. Um, people get solicited all day to participate in all sorts of things like political polls. Right. Maybe they don't want to answer my survey. And so you're trying to get enough responses back to make it a useful sample. This was several years worth of work. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, it wasn't always clear that it was going to be possible to do everything I wanted to do. Right. It worked out really well and I was pleased with the result. It's a really interesting paper, I thought. But uh, I can see why people would be dissuaded from trying. Right. I'm not sure it would be even possible in every jurisdiction to do this survey, but it was here. Right. Well, thank you very much for the time today. It's my pleasure. Is that all the, are those all the questions you That's have? That's all I've got, yeah. Great. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about this. I like looking at expert witnesses. I think it's a really interesting area where the science and the law interact. Right. And it's right on the borderline of that interaction that makes for some really interesting case law. And that's why I've decided to spend so much time writing about it and doing research in this area. So I'm glad you had a chance to look at the article. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully uh, that was helpful for you and your listeners. Yes, thank you very much. Mm -hmm.